I will say that I am motivated and driven when I have something to work towards. And every single day for me, that is my son. I will not allow my life and my mistakes to reflect on him and how he will be raised and the opportunities that he will get. And I'm glad that I have the education behind me with the prison system and the justice system and tr just trouble, just trouble and hardships to where I can now portray that to my son to hope and pray that he can avoid that too, because I didn't have that. I don't feel as though I had that kind of guidance. And I feel like it's super important, especially at a young age for children to know this can happen, but this is how you can avoid it. What can I do to help you? I want to be there for my son mentally more than anything, because to me, mental health controls every aspect of your life. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Taylor Harbor. And just four years ago, 19-year-old Taylor Harbor thought that her life was over when she went to prison for armed robbery. But today, she has gained over a million followers on TikTok, where she uses her platform to turn her pain into purpose. Taylor was a three-sport athlete and a model student in grade school, but after a fight in high school became quite public, Taylor was banned from playing sports her senior year and it devastated her. She went on to barely graduate and her life started to fall apart. Taylor ended up getting caught up in the wrong crowd and began using hard drugs to numb the pain. Things went downhill fast, and one year after graduating high school, Taylor would be arrested on armed robbery charges. This came after a botched attempt to rob a drug dealer with a few friends of hers at the time. She was taken to jail, charged, and a $250,000 bond was set for her release. Despite a heartwarming plea to the judge for some mercy for being a first-time offender, she was sentenced to prison. Shortly after her incarceration, she entered her prison boot camp program that would end up saving her life. Today, she is here to walk you through exactly how she went from that prison cell to using her 1 million plus social media platform to share her story, break the stigma, and inspire others. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Taylor Harbor to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. I'm so excited to be here. I have been looking forward to this for about two weeks now. Yeah, me too. I am really inspired by your story. I'm really inspired by everything that you've overcome. I mean, in just like six short months, it seems like you've built this incredible brand just through telling your story of essentially like how getting arrested for armed robbery and going to prison like saved your life and changed your life. And now you've built you know, over a million followers on TikTok. You've built a great community of people that that love you and that support you and that, you know, are really inspired by you. But I, I want to kind of go back, right? Because people see you now, you look completely different than you were just flashing your your prison pictures to me. And, and there's, <laughs> I see like two different tailors. Yeah. So I guess what I want to know is from what I understand from from learning about you is that you were a major athlete in high school. You played sports year round. You were a good kid. You got good grades and you worked, I think, at a cap in the Capitol building when you were a sophomore in high school. Like you were on the path to, to success. But I think 
as you shared before, like senior year, like things started to get a little rocky for you. So what, what transpired during your senior year that kind of started this, started you down this path of self-destruction? Absolutely. You, you really nailed everything on the head there. So senior year essentially is when things started to take a toll for me. Like you said, good kid growing up, good grades, your your average teenager. Okay. I wasn't, I wasn't getting into a lot of trouble when I was a teenager, mainly because sports were keeping me in line. So because of my passion for sports, it it kept me aligned in a sense of I have to make good grades or I'm not going to be able to do sports or, you know, I have to be a good kid or my mom's going to pull me from the sports team. You know, that was, that was my, that was my end goal. Now my senior year, things started to turn and I was unable to do any sports at my high school, my senior year, because I started to get into trouble the summer before my senior year. I, I got into a fight. If I'm being honest, I got into a fight, not on school campus, off of school campus, but I was representing the school with an orange, with an orange park shirt where my, the high school I went to. And, and because this went viral on the internet. And when I say viral, I mean, just within my town different kids from different schools were there and they were recording it on their cell phones. The first week of my senior year, I'm sitting in class and and swim was just about to start. I did swim all four years or all three years, mind you. And I was about to get ready for my fourth year. I was on the verge of being the captain of the swim team because of how much I had advanced. And I'm so excited. And I get pulled out of class my senior year by the administration. They pull me into the office. I've got the athletic director, the administration and an officer standing there. They had already printed out a picture of me with this shirt on in the middle of this fight. I was representing the school. And because of that, they they printed this picture out, put it in the athletic book. And they said, you are no longer allowed to step foot on another track or field here at Orange Park High School ever again. And that moment, I feel like my entire world started to go downhill. I, I went straight to the guidance counselor and I said, I'm dropping out. I said, I'm dropping out of school right now. There's no reason for me to be here. That's how serious I was about these sports and how I felt like I had nothing left. It was embarrassing. It was the whole nine yards. I had my coaches fighting for me on the outside. Like, Hey, please let her, you know, let her come swim, let her come run, you know, let her come lift. And there was nothing no anybody could do. It was already set in stone. From that point on, I did make it through my senior year. I graduated with the class of 2016. I still maintained my good grades to graduate. But after graduation, when I say things really took a toll, things really started to go downhill. I I got my own apartment. So at first I thought I was doing well, right? Still your normal teenage girl, just getting my own apartment. I got a car. I've got a good job. I'm working at a daycare, okay? You know, a very a very good job. And it wasn't even a couple months into living in this apartment, my freedom, you know, on my own, where I then was introduced to who I refer to as my co-defendants, the people whom I caught this charge with. There are five of us total. When I ended up going to prison, we all were charged with the same thing. And this is when the bad habits started to come into play, you know, the, the drug use and I had no self-control. I was depressed. I was anxious and my mental health was deteriorating. So I started experiencing with drugs. And then one thing led to another uh, and eventually led to my arrest in the end. Wow. So there's a lot there to to kind of unpack. And I guess t- to start, like, could you sense, I guess, during high school at all that 
there was something missing inside of you. I know before we recorded, you were you were telling me that the, the first time you really met your dad was was at his funeral. Do you think that did you have any feelings of like less than or any feelings of like what's wrong with me or, or why is my life look a little bit different than the average kid like as you were in high school? Absolutely. I never met my dad. He he passed away when I was about nine years old. The first time I ever saw my dad in person was laying in this casket. I was in elementary school. I hadn't even really heard about my dad. He wasn't he wasn't the best person. But from what I heard for the couple of years, he was involved in my brother's life, who was three years older than me. So about three years old, that he was a good dad when he was there. But he was also he was he was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic and that took control of his life. And, and to this day, I thank I thank God that I did not I didn't get that bad to where my son or my children or, or my life, you know, came last and drugs came first for a split second there in my life between high school and my arrest that year in between literally only a year I was arrested May of 2017. And I, I graduated high school in May of 2016. So just in that little time span, the drugs that I experienced with almost almost had me and, and almost took control to where I, I always say this. I say I had to get locked up to be set free. Wow. And I find it so important because if it was not for my arrest, God only knows where I would be. I could be a six feet under. I could be serving a much more serious prison sentence than than what I what I already served. Wow. So I guess I can imagine that your relationship with your mom was probably somewhat stable during your early high school years, because like you said, you were a good kid, you got good grades, you were good at sports, and you just were the average person that was thriving as a kid. And typically, most of the time when that happens, you know, relationships with your parents tend to be pretty well, right? I think it tends to, they tend to go downhill when the kids start to make mistakes, they get into drugs, they start partying, they start quitting things, and then it creates tension in the household. So where, what was your relationship like, like early on with your mom in high school? And then yeah. how did it change? Like, as you started to get into trouble, like when you're a senior? Absolutely. So with my mom, we, we had a, a decent relationship as I was growing up, no wrongdoing on either end. In high school, typically you hear about the the teenage daughter and mom, you know, typical arguing and bickering and, oh, she hates me or whatever. But when it comes to me and my mom, around the age of about 16, I, I experienced some severe trauma in my life that really set me back mental health wise. And I felt as though my mom, it wasn't handled the best way on her end. Right. And by that, I mean the support that I needed at that time. And where it went thereafter, I don't feel as though was handled correctly. So because of that, and not having a dad, and also mind you, my brother, my best friend growing up still is to this day, my best friend, he's again, about three years older than me. And we've always had the best relationship. And when he when he left, he was in the military, he left me at home with just my mom, and my stepdad. And when he left, I feel like things really also with me and my mom kind of went downhill. He was kind of like my dad figure growing up. So I did have I do have a stepdad. But in a sense, my brother was more so there for me in that aspect. And when he left, I didn't have that support or him to vent to or him to help me with my mental health. And I turned to my mom and I'm not getting it from my mom, then I just feel alone and I'm just stuck. So I would resort to other places like 
not wanting to feel or be alone. So I would resort to other people, like people my age, my what I called my friends, and they weren't really my friends in the end. They didn't have my best interest in mind. We were also very young, young-minded, not really knowing where to go with life. So I think essentially with my mom, it definitely triggered my going downhill in my senior year. Right. And it seems like sports was a, was a major source of healing, was a major source of stress relief. It was a major source of, of essentially just managing your mental health in a positive way. And when that got taken away from you, it seems like things really started to spiral downhill quickly. So you barely graduate high school, right? And I think it was more or less because of, of attendance, right? That you- Right, I, I started, I, I, that's why I, I wasn't able to participate in my prom, in my grad bash. And that was due to the fact that I didn't have good attendance. I still graduated. I still had decent grades, but I just stopped going to school as much as I should have. And my administration at the school, it got to the point where I'm so desperate. I was like, there's no way I, I didn't go to prom freshman, sophomore, junior year because I was saving it for senior year. You know, that's something big you want to experience. And I wrote a letter to my writing was always my passion. It was always my out, you know, my source. And I wrote a letter to the principal at, at my high school. And he almost, he almost caved. He almost did. I, I went to him and I was like, did you read my letter? And he said, you know what, Miss Harbor? He was like, I did. He was like, but uh, as of right now, I still stand where I do and, and we're not going to allow you to go to prom. So I definitely did try. I still put forth the effort, but at that point it was too late as far as my attendance goes. So, and honestly, my behavior at school started to change. Again, I still graduated, but I wasn't the nicest person after that. You know, like, again, I, I wasn't going after school to practice anymore. I had all this free time on my hands to introduce myself to new people, to smoke pot more often. And then eventually after I graduate, I turn 18 and all of a sudden I get introduced to these drugs that I didn't even know existed. And then things really started to spiral. All right, let's, let's talk about that because I have a lot of parents that listen to my show and they'll wonder like how their kids you know, go from being somebody who was just the average kid who played sports, who got good grades, who had like a decent group of friends in high school. And they start like many kids, they experiment with different things. They'll go right. out and they'll party on the weekends and drink or they'll smoke some pot. And then a lot of people grow out of that phase, right? And it doesn't affect them. But then there's a lot of people that that is like the catalyst for this destructive path of addiction or destructive path of harm to themselves and which it seemed like it was for you. So like, how did you end up meeting these kids? Cause you were, you, you said that like the kids that you were your co-defendants and that you started to do hard drugs with weren't your friends from high school. They were just a different group. So how did you meet them after graduating high school? If you ask those that know me best, what has been an ongoing struggle of mine, it's definitely been my sleep. I am sure many of you can relate to this. One small change I recently made is that I started taking magnesium breakthrough by Bioptimizers, which is the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. I've taken lots of magnesium supplements throughout the last decade, and this one is rare in that it actually makes me feel relaxed when I take it. And I'm not the only one who is in love with magnesium breakthrough. Marie left a five-star review saying, I give this 100 stars if I could. Within one month of use, I went from daily struggles with restless legs, constipation, and poor sleep to no struggles with any of that. I know it sounds dramatic and far-fetched, but it's true. Amanda says, I fall asleep much faster and stay asleep now until normal waking hours. You have a customer for life. 
Listen, if you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can possibly do is start getting enough magnesium. But please do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement that you find. Most magnesium supplements use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. And since they're not full spectrum, they won't fix your magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug10 to save 10% when you try Magnesium Breakthrough. Oh, and one more thing. For a limited time, Buy Optimizers is also giving away free bottles of their best-selling products, P30M and Mazimes, with select purchases only while supplies last. So hurry and order now if you want the free gifts. So go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug now to get your exclusive 10% discount, plus the chance to get more than $50 worth of supplements for free. Now back to the show. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, I've, I've, sit, I've sat and, and thought about it. I'm like, what was the initial meeting with these people, right? Because like you said, none of my high school friends that were halfway decent or decent were, they were not involved in my life in this year time span where everything crashed. So the five of the four of them that I met all after high school, all after I got this apartment with my name on it, right? And it was a mutual friend from high school that introduced me to the one female co-defendant that I have, the co-defendant being the people whom I caught the charge with. So I did meet her through, you know, a high school friend, but we didn't all hang out together. It was just me and my co-defendant, this new girl. Well, it was her boyfriend that really kind of took control of everything and introduced me to these drugs. And again, never in my life beforehand did I even know about these drugs or, and they're not, it's not like they're super. So I'll just go ahead and, and put it out there that the two main drugs that I was becoming addicted to started with Xanax and cocaine. So, and what's really crazy for some people that may be listening is that nobody knew this was happening in my life. I was still portraying to the outside, to my mom, to my family, to my brother, that I'm still just doing just fine. I'm still working at the daycare. I'm still paying my rent. I'm fine. I'm still your average tailor. Nothing has changed in their eyes, but little did they know behind my apartment door that I was experiencing with these drugs and then eventually became a habit and then an addiction that then led me to do things that I would not do if I was not under the influence of these drugs. So, so looking back, like, what do you think was most enticing to you about these drugs? Because it's interesting that, you know, Xanax for one, obviously is, is something that's used to, to man, to deal with anxiety and panic attacks. So I'm sure there was a lot of that that went on inside of your heart, inside of your mind, because you're like, oh yep. my gosh, like, what am I going to do growing when I grow up? Like, I can't believe that my life's become this. Like, there's tons of fears that go along with that, insecurities. And, you're, and it's, it's, an, it's a numbing mechanism, right? It's, an, it's mm -hmm. something that you can take to really just suppress any feelings, right. any negative emotions, and, and just feel like zen with where yep. you are in your life. And then you have cocaine, which... If you're dealing with somebody who's feeling less than or insecure or depressed or not feeling good about themselves, it gives them this massive dopamine hit 
that they're right. now feeling this sense of euphoria that they can do anything. So my question, I guess, is did you experience like any of those feelings that I was talking about when you did those drugs and you're like, oh my gosh, like now I can feel like good about myself and I need to continue to do whatever it is to get that same feeling. 100%. And what's crazy is those two drugs hand in hand, they counteract with each other, right? Exactly. Yeah. So like you said that the Xanax, it really triggers the anxiety, you know, like, so, and so it got to the point where I was convincing myself that it's okay that I'm taking Xanax because I have anxiety. Right. So it's okay. I'm just self-medicating. And I convinced myself of that to where I was like, I don't have an addiction problem. I'm not addicted to Xanax, but I was, and it, it got worse and it got worse. And it gave me that feeling of like, okay, I'm a little more relaxed now. And then I would wake up and then I don't have that feeling anymore. So I'm like, okay, I got to go get some more, or I got to take another one. And then the cocaine is more like a nightlife kind of thing that would come out at night. I'd be like, Oh, it's like, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to sit here. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to, I don't want to be thinking about all of these things. Like, wow, look at where my life is at now. Let, let's just do some Coke and whoa, let's party and, and have a good time for however many hours that's going to last. And then you're going to wake up again. And then you're going to start that cycle over. I need a Xanax. And then you're going to hit the nightlife and you can be like, oh, I need cocaine. And that went on for months. And again, I can't stress enough that nobody knew from the outside, the people that truly cared about me and that would have been there to help me had no idea that this was going on. Mm. Wow. And, and you're right. You can begin to justify or validate like anything in your life based on the lies that you begin to tell yourself, right? You can just say like, well, I have anxiety or I've gone through a bunch of stuff in my life. So this is okay to do this. And then you just, you just start like the, the goalposts start, start to widen. Right. And right. you're like, Oh, I can validate this. I'm going to, I can snort Xanax now because now my anxiety is <laughs> getting worse and it's okay. I'm just taking care of myself. And then you do the Coke and you're like, I'm just tired. Like I'll get through it. This will be just a phase. Like I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. It's just for the time being. And then that creates like a sense of normalcy. And that's what I believe trips up a lot of people when they get in the cycle of addiction is because that becomes their new normal in the sense that like for me, what, what I know in my using years that I thought that getting high, selling drugs, skipping school, stealing stuff, like I thought that was okay because my brain had been rewired to know that those decisions are cool. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure just based on what I know about how this works is that when you initially started to go from just being the girl who smoked pot with your friends in high school to hanging out with this new group and doing harder drugs in your gut, I guarantee you're like, something's off. Something's not right here. And you had this, this immense fear. But after you start doing it for a period of time, things start to normalize because everybody now in your circle is doing the same thing and you become a creature of your environment, right? Amen. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so you took the words right out of my mouth. I was, I was thinking that I was like, you are a product of your environment. And that's why I say the people around me, it wasn't out of the norm for them. And that's the only, I was only surrounding myself around them. And it's crazy because I would go to work and those people had no idea about what was going on as soon as I leave work or what happened the night before. I mean, I would try to make myself feel like a good person, like a normal person while I'm there. Like, see, I'm, I'm still have a good job. These people are still normal. These people aren't doing drugs. So it's fine. I still associate with some good people and I go home and I'm a completely different person. I swear it was like, I was, I could flip a switch. Like I was a completely different person. You know, I was embarrassed. It's, it's embarrassing, you know, a, a drug addiction when you're in, when you're actively in it. And, and I will tell you right now, it took me until 
about five months sitting in a county jail before I actually admitted that I was an addict. Mm -hmm. I would go to AA and NA inside of that jail. And I am not kidding you when they go around in a circle and you introduce yourself and you say, hi, my name is Taylor and I'm an addict. I would sit there and I would say, hi, my name is Taylor. And then they would go to the next person. I would not say I am an addict. And I would have people looking at me like, why are you here? Like, what are you doing right now? And then there were people who were like, I know where you're at right now. I know why you're not saying that. And then finally, I showed up to one of those NA classes and I sat there and I said, hi, my name is Taylor and I'm an addict. And I just, I lost it. I started bawling and it took me those months to forgive myself and realize, you know, I came to a realization. I finally was back to normal. I didn't have any more drugs in my system. You know, I had already been sitting here. I had so much time to think that I finally was able to admit to myself that I had a problem. So do you think if it wasn't for what happened in high school, like you mentioned, you had a traumatic event when you were 16 and then the, the fight that essentially, you know, cost you the rest of your high school career and education, potentially, I guess, in some ways, because you weren't allowed to go to prom, you weren't allowed to like do certain activities, coupled that with these, these new, this new circle of influence. Do you think if that hadn't have happened, you still would have gone down the path you did, or do you think things could have been differently for you? I honestly believe things would have been different if it weren't for not being able to do sports. I think about that all the time. And it's always my initial go-to whenever I backtrack and I'm like, where did this all begin? People don't understand the passion. I mean, I've got, I've got so many plaques and ribbons. My name is written all over that school on the walls for my bars, for all of my athletic, you know, rewards. And, and I was, I was so good at what I did and I loved it. And the passion was so strong. And I had, I had a scholarship offer my junior year going into senior year. Cause I did club track. That was my main sport track was my passion. And my club track coach was also the school coach. Okay. And he helped us a lot. That was his goal is to get us to college. Okay. So my first offer was at St. Mary's call it Catholic college in New York. And it just wasn't my vibe. It wasn't something that I wanted to do, but it was only my first offer. So I was like, I can only go up from here. Right. So to me, if I would have had that my senior year, knowing that I could strive to that, I feel like I could have made something of myself and that I would be in college for a sport, you know, maybe not D one, I may not be in the Olympics one day, but it would still keep me going through my college years and education. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that because of the fact that, I mean, everybody's a good kid. It's not like there's good kids and bad kids, but right. like you were on a path to success, playing sports all year, getting good grades. You were again, like working at a Capitol building, like getting involved in politics. Like right. the, the, the bar was set pretty high for where you were going to go. And then your life starts to slowly fall apart due to a slew of unfortunate events. And then on some bad decisions on your end in response to a lot of those events, and I, right. I can, I'm sure that there was a, an immense amount of, of shame after high school that you look back and you have people worried about you. You have teachers worried about you, coaches, even some members of your family when they started to begin to find out like some to some extent of what was going on that you're like, wow, like I can't believe that I went from you know, a, a, a girl who was super talented in high school, super passionate about sports to now like here I am in this group hanging out with this group of people that I never thought I'd be surrounding myself with. I'm, I'm snorting Coke or I'm doing Xanax. So where does, so I know like huh, everything kind of came to a head in your own apartment 
where you were with your five to five codependents, you end up trying to to rob this kid and a gun goes off. That is what essentially like landed you in prison. But I guess before we unpack that, that scenario, like were there any other events that, that happened like between like you starting to experiment with these drugs and the, the armed robbery, like, how did you, like, how were you affording to get these drugs? Were you selling stuff or were people giving them to you? Like, like, what did, what did that look like? So I did have a job for the most part for the, for the, for that entire time span while I was living in my apartment up until the very end. But before that, I lived in a one bedroom apartment with my name on it. I got it. And my, my co-defendants, there was the one female who I considered my best friend at the time. And then there was her boyfriend, which he was the main, we'll call him culprit, I guess, in this crime. Okay. So both of them are now living with me. We're a couple months into my apartment. They, I mean, I literally took out my dining room table, put it in storage, and they had a bed right there in my living room. And we lived like that for almost a year. So not the best living situation either. And, you know, honestly, yeah, I probably... No, not probably. I did some things before the actual main event, we'll call it, that could have gotten me in trouble, but we got away with it. And essentially, the biggest thing was like guns, for instance, my the male co-defendant who lived with me, who I considered my friend at the time, he he liked to always have a gun on him or to, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you, we'd be driving down we'd be driving down the highway and he, he's just having fun, takes his gun out, just bop, bop, bop out the window just for fun. Like that was like a fun, like nightly activity. Okay. Like just hood, hoodlum stuff. Just like, what are, what are we doing? Like, why are we, why are we doing that? And I'm not kidding you. We would get in the car to take a drive just for that, just so we could have the rush of shooting the gun off, you know, just stupid, stupid stuff like that. And, and other people, that were in my apartment and yes the the male whom I was living with at the time living in my apartment he his his job was selling weed that's how he made his money and he was doing it outside of my apartment and one thing you do you don't you don't bring your dirt to your house that's for sure because there were some other instances where the roles were switched from the what happened in my main event and I had a gun to my head at one point because we were in so much trouble with people that now I'm getting robbed because this man is selling drugs outside of my apartment. So it was definitely, it led up to this main event as to how we were living. I wasn't just working at a daycare doing fine. And then all of a sudden the next morning I wake up and we're robbing somebody in my apartment with a gun for some drugs, you know? So it was definitely led up to this point. Yeah. You begin to to stack these bad decisions and then you essentially have to from what i understand from what i know from experience what i understand you have to keep like leveling up these bad decisions to get like the same rush or a different rush right because right. like the initial higher rush you get from just doing a decision is the same after you do that decision right it's got to get better or worse just why you see people like continue to make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And all of a sudden they make a really bad decision. You're like, whoa, like, how did I get here? It wasn't whoa. just that one decision. It was like all right. these other things that added up to that. So let's go through the, the main event. I think this is something that everyone's been waiting to kind of hear. Yeah. So you're, you're at your apartment. There's a kid coming over to, to sell you guys some Xanax. Right. You guys essentially plan to rob him but things didn't go as planned. What happened? So there was basically, it was a money issue. And to begin with my rent needed to be paid. 
and we didn't have it because at this point I didn't have a job because I was so, so far gone. He was only selling, you know, he was selling what he was selling, but he didn't make enough to pay my rent. And so he, he said, initially he said, we, we, we got to make some money somehow. So this robbery was set up in a sense for this guy to come over and sell us a large amount of Xanax and pot. And he gets to my apartment and the three males that are involved in this crime are basically in my back bedroom. And me and the other female are sitting in the living room with this guy. And from there, the guys, in a sense, took over. They came out. They, in their head, they thought it would be as easy as give me your stuff and leave. But I will say that this guy didn't, he didn't take that for an answer. He actually, he fought back in self-defense and began kind of like swinging on him and, and like, whoa, 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 what's happening right now as he should. And that's when one of my male co-defendants who had the firearm took out the gun. Now he, he had it. He didn't have it when he first came out. He then pulls it out. It's now in his hand. And then at first tries to kind of get the guy to see the gun and be like, Hey, now give me all your stuff. And then the guy still did not. So that's when he pistol whipped him on the back of his head. And when he pistol whipped him, the gun accidentally goes off. And by the grace of God, in that one bedroom apartment, 764 square feet apartment, just in that living room, six of us are in there. Okay. And if I could lay it out for you, I would, but basically just know that the bullet went through the part of the wall where nobody was the only part where nobody was standing. I mean, we were all spread out in this living room and it goes straight through the section that nobody's at. So by the grace of God, nobody died and nobody actually got shot. And we weren't dealing with a murder case, you know, at this point. And I just remember at that point, everything happened really fast. But as soon as that gun goes off, I just remember everything seems to go in like slow motion. And I hear all this chaos behind like the ringing in my ears from the gun going off. And I'm like, at first I was like, did somebody just get shot? Is somebody dead? What's going on? How did, how did this happen? This was not supposed to happen this way. It shouldn't have been happen happening to begin with. I knew I was in the wrong place. I knew what was happening. So I take responsibility for that to this day. I was aware of what was going to happen and I didn't take the proper steps to stop it. I allowed it to happen. So that's my responsibility on my end. But at that point, it was, where do we go from here? How serious is this? I know nothing about the justice system, going to jail, going to prison, how much trouble this actually was. I had no idea. And I remember we all fled the apartment. The victim stayed behind and he called the cops. We didn't know he called the cops at first until about maybe 20 minutes into our car ride away from my apartment. I'm getting blown up by private numbers, unknown numbers, officers, investigators, trying to get a hold of me because this is my apartment. And when they see that my name is on it, I'm the only one that they want right now. I'm the only one that they know they want. So essentially it didn't even take me an hour. So from the time that that gun went off and all of this went down, probably within the next hour, I turned myself around and I turned myself in. This decision was made pretty sporadically, but in the end, what was I going to do? 
my whole life was back at that apartment. My, I had a dog. I had, I had my whole house full of stuff. My, my purse and my, my whole life was like there, you know, I, I can't run away from this. Where am I going to go? Am I going to go to Mexico for the rest of my life? No. And again, I didn't realize the extent of the trouble that I had just gotten myself into, but it was like, this was a long time coming. <laughs> like that I, uh, it was going to get to this point somehow, some way. And then there we were. Now I am at, back at my apartment with 20 plus officers and investigators swarming my apartment complex. An eight hour investigation goes on inside of my apartment. I'm then transferred to the local substation right up the road. They do another interrogation on me and then it kind of goes from there. So that right there, that day changed my life more than the day I was told I could not do sports anymore. It was like, boom, and then boom, just a year after I graduated, a year after I took off my cap and gown to walk down that stage and graduate with my high school diploma, I am now being transferred to Clay County Jail, where I will then spend the next seven months before I'm sentenced to prison. Wow. You are super, super lucky that that bullet went into the wall and not into to anybody else. A couple questions I guess I have is you mentioned that like you turned yourself in. Did you, did you tell anybody you were turning yourself in? Did you tell your mom? Did you tell any family members, your brother, your friends? Like, did you tell anybody what happened? Yeah. So my mom, again, having no idea that this is how I'm actually living. I call her immediately. I'm in the car still. I'm like, mom, this just happened. A gun just went off in my apartment. Like I told her everything. I told her this is what happened. And she, she herself Nobody in my family has ever been in trouble. I'm the first and only one who have ever gone to jail in my family. She knows nothing. She's like, okay, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's and to her, she, she was like, well, it doesn't sound like you, you didn't have the gun, right? Like you didn't, you didn't do, do that. And I'm like, I was still there, but to her, she kind of was like, face the music, you know, what are you going to do? You'll only make it worse for yourself if you try to run. And if you don't turn yourself in, they're going to find you eventually. It's a small town. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You know, my mom was the only family member that I reached out to, to, to kind of let her know what was going on. And the next time she heard from me, I was calling her at two o'clock in the morning when they booked me in at Clay County jail. So that was, that was kind of the reality of that. Right. Wow. So I know you mentioned when you were at the apartment, all this was going down, like you knew you shouldn't have been there. You knew what you were doing was wrong. You knew that it wasn't going to end well. Like after that all happened. Did you have a feeling like this is it? This is over. Like I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail. Like I'm never going to amount to anything. Like I'm just going to be a, a screw up the rest of my life or however. I mean, I know the thoughts that went through my head and I completely thought of myself as a, as a screw up when I got arrested. Like, did you, did you know you were going to spend a substantial amount of time in jail or do you think you were just going to get away with it? Cause it wasn't your gun. So I'm not going to lie at first during the course of the investigation, before I was actually put into handcuffs, I thought because I turned myself in, because they know they know everything. This is my apartment. I, I did what I needed to do on their end. I gave them what they wanted. So I'm 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 probably going home. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go to jail. No way. And I'm 19 years old. I've never been in trouble before. They're not gonna take me to jail. So yes, of course I did. And then it was that moment that they put me in those handcuffs, and I spent the car ride from the substation to the to the jail was probably about 30 minutes. And that realization just hit me. And I was like, whoa, I was like, I've, I've been at rock bottom for quite some time now. And I didn't realize it. I thought I was on my highest high, but I was actually at my lowest low. I had no more job. 
my car broke down and I was so broke, I couldn't afford to fix it. So I had no car. I, I didn't have very good relationships with any of the people that actually cared about me, like my family. You know, I had nothing left. It was just me. It was just my body. It was just myself. It was just like, I was just a walking body. Like, what is the point of me right now? Like, where, what am I going to do with myself? I didn't start going to college. I don't have anything behind me. Like what? I graduated high school and then this is it. And then I realized when I got there at that point, I was like, am I, am I ever going to leave here? Like, what is the process of this? Am I going to, am I going to go home in, in a day? Am I going to get bonded out? Or am I going to, am I going to go to prison? Like I, I couldn't even like wrap my mind around the thought of prison, you know, cause there's jail and then there's prison. And I could not fathom or imagine myself in prison. It took a long time sitting in County to realize that I needed to accept that I am going to prison. And even up until the day that I was sentenced, I still had that little bit of hope that I would be able to make it out of this and not go to prison, that that judge would say, I have served enough time in this County jail and that let's do some outpatient programming. Let's get your mental health back where it needs to be, which we can touch on later, but I strongly believe needs to be more touched on when it comes to the justice system and sentencing mental health. Right. No, I a hundred percent agree. And that's, that's, I've had this, I had a conversation about this recently on the podcast about how we need to do a better job with the criminal justice system or the criminal justice system needs to do a better job of incorporating like rehabilitation programs into the facilities. And if you're actually sentencing people to jail or prison to like learn their lessons and, you know, find, find themselves again and figure out what they did wrong, like really teaching them how to rebuild their life during that process, instead of just let it, letting them sit there in isolation, right. not being able to, to kind of do anything to actually take that information and, and turn it into something positive. So is there, I guess before we get into like what happened with the trial and everything, like, was there anything you, you think as you look back that if you had had this or that, like during that pivotal time in your life where you were starting to make these wrong decisions that led you down this path of being arrested for the armed robbery, like would have, have changed anything? Meaning like if, if you had gone to, to therapy maybe, or if maybe like your mom and your relationship was better, or right. if you ended up like somebody came alongside of you and, and helped you like, guide you into to college, like, do you think your life would have been different? I work well under pressure. And when I know I have something to work towards, but when I don't, which is where I felt like my life was at that point, like, I, I, where am I going to go from here? I have nothing to work towards. There's nobody to make proud. They, they don't care about me anymore. And I feel like mental health, again, if my mental health would have been up to par, no way I would have gotten myself involved in what I did. But I was just, I, I never wanted to be alone. And that's a big mental health issue for people is not wanting to be alone, not being able to accept being alone. I always had to have somebody there with me, whether they were good or bad, to just live life with. And that's where my co-defendants come into play. These people that I let, let live with me in a one-bedroom apartment, why the heck would I do that? Because I didn't want to be alone. I would overhear them because they were a couple. I would overhear them having a conversation in the living room talking about how they might be getting another house or they want to move out at some point. And I was like, oh my God, how do I stop that? How do I stop these people? Even though they were no good for me, even though we were just doing drugs every day and it'd probably be, be best if they just leave. How can I stop them from leaving me? I don't want to be alone. 
And I was so embarrassed about how my life, how I was living my life that I didn't want to reach out to my family, to my mom or my brother, you know, my aunts, my uncles. I have a huge family and all of them love me so much, but I, I was so ashamed and embarrassed. And I feel, I feel like they wouldn't have understood. And that's something else that I really want people to know is that if you have never struggled with addiction or mental health illnesses, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. And by that, I mean that my family really didn't struggle with that. My mom really never had any kind of mental health issues or a drug addiction at that. No way. And her being my number one, being my mom, someone that I feel as though I should go to first before anyone, I felt like it was only going to be judgment placed on me. If I went to her and I was like, mom, look, I was like, I know I sent you a picture of my legs all bruised up last week and told you I just needed some vitamins to fix it. But really, it's because I'm so bad on Xanax that I, I, my body is deteriorating. Right. And that was the thing. Like I, I was, I was abs- asking my mom to send me money for vitamins, sending her pictures of my bruised up legs, saying, mom, I think something's wrong. I just need some vitamins. It's probably just something with my blood, right? But really, I was using that $40 she sent me to go get another bag of Coke. Mm. You know, so I think a lot of it had to do with judgment and feeling as though that I was alone. And that was the worst feeling that I could have still to this day. I struggle with it being alone, but definitely much better now than I used to be. Yeah, I definitely want to get into like how you deal with that now, just being somebody now that you're a few years removed from the situation of being in prison. And now you have a son and you're a single mom and like how you navigate all of that, considering that being in a very similar situation, like is what kind of helped to lead to your downfall when you were younger. But first, so you get arrested, you're charged with armed robbery, you go to county jail, you spend seven months there, your bail was pretty high, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? $250,000. It would have been about $25,000 to get me out at that time. Okay. And then your mom, I guess, really came back into play. And once she found out how much trouble you were in, decided to help you and get you an attorney. So what was the process like of go to jail? You're not bailed out, right? You're just, right. You, you do your time in there and you're awaiting trial. What was that process? What were some of the things you discovered about yourself in those initial few months of, of being yeah. locked up that you needed to, to hear within yourself that, that kind of helped you, I guess, transform, if you will, because I think th- those are like the crucial months when you like remove all the masks, not having to fit in with your friends, not having to fit in via drugs, not having to fit in by lying to your family, not having to fit in by like, you know, faking it at, at work, whatever it is. And it's just you like purely raw, you're naked, not, not, I mean, not physically naked. I'm talking mentally no. naked, emotionally naked, spiritually naked. You start to find out more about yourself. So what were some of those things you, you discovered? We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second. But first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, 
earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah, so I, I get arrested and I find out my bond is $250,000. I call my mom as soon as I have the, the, the first appearance meeting where they tell me that and I tell her and, and you know, we, we obviously came to the conclusion that I'm going to sit in here until we get this figured out and we're going to put that money towards an attorney. So for my mom, I thank her incredibly because you're right. I, as soon as I got arrested until now today, that woman is my best friend. And she helped support me every single day. She answered my phone calls multiple times a day. She sent me food every single week. She put money on my phone so that I could call other people. You know, she financially and mentally supported me the entire course of my sentencing. So that was something that was mended while being locked up. Something else just on the side, I had people writing me that I went to high school with or friends that were actually good people that I lost connection with. And there was this one girl specifically, her name was Gabby, and I went to high school with her. And she typed me a letter, okay? This girl spent the time to type me a letter about two pages long, apologizing for the way our friendship ended and telling me how she knows that I have the potential to get out of this and where I was before. And she's so sorry that, you know, I, my life got to this point where I am now at rock bottom because I'm telling you, just nobody expected it, not even in myself. There, everyone was in shock. I mean, it was, it was a big story around my hometown. I was headlined in the, in the Clay Today, which is a new, local newspaper with, there's my mugshot with three teens arrested at the time. There were only three of us arrested, three teens arrested for armed robbery and yada, yada, yada. And everyone was like, what in the world? Like Taylor? And I'm in there and you're right. I, I, I was, I had time to sober up, to be away from the drugs and alcohol and from everyone else, social media at that. And it was just me, myself and I, and my journal that my mom sent me. And that right there was a big lifesaver to me. I filled that journal up from front to back, every single page. I still have it somewhere here and it's literally hanging on by a thread because it's been through so much. And that journal is what allowed me to let these demons out of me and onto that paper. And if you have a passion for writing, you know exactly what I mean. And if you don't, you should try it. You know, it took me a while to start writing. It did. But I mean, I would write things. I would write poems and, and songs and just journals for that day or just write out the demons that I hadn't forgiven myself for. And I think that's where a lot of my mental health came into because before that, my early, my last year in high school and that year between high school and my arrest, I had so many demons I was battling. And that's why drugs were my number one, because I wanted to get rid of those feelings. But over the course of the seven months sitting inside of the county jail, I was able to forgive myself for so many things. And one of those things being the trauma that happened to me when I was 16, that made me and my mom separate. So I was able to forgive her for that and let that go. And I was able to forgive myself. And a lot of it had to do with the way that I wrote it out. And another really cool thing about when you are locked up, or I guess not cool thing about being locked up, but something that I learned when I was in there is that I made connections with people that were in there like no other that I still talk to to this day. My bunkie, I call her my bunkie. So my cellmate, she was a 52 year old lady. She's actually serving a 10 year sentence right now at Lowell, the prison that I went to. 
But for the time that she was in there with me, she was kind of like my mom. Because when you're in these places, you form a family. There are moms and dads and uncles and brothers. And we may all be women, but you get the whole nine yards in there. And being able to vent to her was a big one. The, The biggest way that I let my demons out is by singing. And I was able to help other people by doing that too. I would write songs. I rewrote songs. I wanted them to the the seven year song. It's like once I was seven years old, that song. And I rewrote it right before I was actually being sentenced to prison. And um, everyone would be like, Hey Taylor, like, can you sing your song? Can you sing your song? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And it helps me be able to get those demons out. Did you work out when you were in there? I mean, I know that physical activity was something that really helped you when you were younger. Did you really able to make to make that like a part of your routine or no? So whenever I was in prison, yes. But if we're talking about county jail, absolutely not. If I'm being honest, I went into county jail weighing a max of 100 pounds soaking wet. I was very unhealthy. And by the time I was transferred to prison from county, I was 151 pounds. Wow. I gained 50 pounds sitting in that county jail. And the biggest reason why is because everyone handles their depression differently. My depression was eating and I ate and I ate and I ate and I just sat there. But when you're in a county jail, every county is different. The one that I was in is considered maximum security for whatever reason. And with that being said, the dorms were very small and they never took us outside like they were supposed to. So we were in this dorm all day, every day. And it like, again, very, very small. And I didn't have the motivation to work out at that time mm-hmm. here and there. Yes. But it never became a drive for me like you and your story where you, you took that with you and, and made that something. Right. Well, and, and you said something really powerful. You talked about like journaling and writing and, and getting stuff off your chest. And cause I think we have to heal pain in whatever way works for us. Some of it's, some of it can be through therapy. Some of it can be through you know, exercise, some of it can be through, you know, writing, journaling, speaking, whatever it is. And you just have to find what works for you. And it seems that the journaling was that, which is, is really, it's really powerful because I, you know, as we're going to, we're going to hear your plea to the judge here in a second, you're a really, really talented writer. And Thank so you. I think you've found like your craft. And I, and I think part of the beautiful thing when you're incarcerated is if you choose to, you can use that time to really to go down this path of self-discovery again and start to unpack some of these gifts, some of these talents, some of these passions that, that may have been lost just due to, to life, due to drugs, addiction, and and that sort of thing. So you're in, you're in County jail for seven months. You you have an attorney and you're awaiting trial. So what, what kind of things was your attorney saying to you? I mean, I know your co-defendants had public defenders. Was was your attorney telling you that you were going to get the same amount of time? Like, what were you thinking was going to happen when you went to court? So I think the number one thing that I have to say about my attorney that I praise him for is that he never led me on, as some attorneys may, as far as he didn't promise me I was going home ever. He never, he never really made it a point to even talk about going home. He knew, and as well as I knew, that something was going to come of this. I'm either going to go to prison, I'm either going to serve the rest of my time here in county jail, or I'm going to go to some kind of outside rehabilitation for, for what I had done. I knew something was coming. And my attorney, he, he actually came to see me a lot, a lot more than your average attorney. So he would come to the jail. He was actually known at the jail for coming to see his clients way too much. Him and I had a very special relationship and I would do a lot of writing for him. He loved it. He would have me write because he, he, took, he took a liking to the way that I wrote as well. So he was like, look, he's like, I think this might help you. Why don't you write a letter to the judge? 
why don't you give me a copy of your journals or here, bring your journal with you next time you see me, let me take it, make copies. And then we'll send it, I'll send it back to you. And he wanted to use what I had to say in my thoughts to help me where I was for the sentencing. And I think that it paid off a lot in the end, especially with my plea. I let him review it. Obviously I read it to him before I stood in front of the judge and read it. And he was like, that's amazing. Now in the end, people would think, well, you went through all of that, but you still went to prison. Absolutely. I did something that deserved to go to prison. I, I, an armed robbery charge, it's not something you're going to spend seven months inside of a county jail and be like, okay, we'll see you later. Have a nice life. I screwed up big time, go big or go home. But I, I went big, you know, and and I, I had to pay my time for that. So, but my attorney, I have, I can only speak highly of him. He continued to fight for me after I was sentenced. And we'll get into that with the boot camp program, which I'm very excited to talk about, but I, I, I truly truly stand by him. And he was a great attorney. Yeah. I think you, people can appreciate when their attorney tells them the truth and doesn't paint this picture that is not realistic and and saying things like, Oh, you're just going to go home or you're not going to get a lot of time or I'll get you out of this just to get a paycheck. Yep. I I think, cause then it creates like this disconnect and, and dissonance between you and reality. And that, that letdown is, I wouldn't have been prepared. That letdown. Yeah, that letdown it can be so traumatic, and then you're then you're walking into the prison or jail already like like below where you were already feeling, which was like crap because now you've just had your trust completely broken. You had your your hope your hopes high that you were like you know I'm gonna get out of this because I have a lawyer, but you didn't. You ended up getting sentenced to the same amount of time that every co-defendant did, except for the person with the gun. So what I what I like now I guess is so you go to court, you're sitting there. And I would say that, you know, to, to the average person after they, they read this, they probably think you have a shot to, to right. go home and get and go home on time served and just saying, you know what, you've served seven months. I think you've learned your lesson. This letter is incredibly inspirational, but it didn't, it didn't help, which is fortunate or unfor- unfortunate, however you want to look at it. So like, what was the plea that you read your judge, like hoping it would convince him right. to change his mind? So who would I have been? to think, to not have just the slightest hope that I could still go home. I mean, I still wanted to have that feeling in me where I was like, okay, if I read this to him, there is still a chance. I was the last of all five of us to be sentenced. All four of my co-defendants, they're already in prison. I'm the only one left at this county jail. And the main reason why is because they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know how they wanted to sentence me. Did they want to sentence me the same as the one who had the gun? Because this was my apartment. So they wanted to hold us accountable. And then the others just get the two years or did they want to sentence me with the two year, the people who got two years. So that's where they were. That's where that, and that's where I, I, I actually feel like my plea might've done me some justice there right. because I will say after I read this, the silence in that courtroom, it felt like an eternity mm. and the judge calls the state attorney and my attorney up to the podium after I read it and they bick, not bicker, but they go back and forth for maybe let's like, like a minute. And then they come back and then the judge then puts his verdict on me and, and then says, you are being sentenced to two years and it could have been four years. So for that, I'm thankful, but I still have my original plea right here that I read to the judge that day. And I would, I would love to read it. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. I think the audience would really like to hear it too. Yeah. It's very well written. I wrote this. I spent a good amount of time on this. I rewrote it and I rewrote it and, and I revised it over and over again. I read it to the girls that were in my dorm 
I got some advice from them. And I, I spent a lot of time on this because again, I had that slightest hope that there's no way my 19 year old self is about to go to prison. So says your honor, when I graduated high school in May of 2016, it marked the biggest accomplishment of my life thus far. But a year later, May 2017, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I don't know what word best describes what I'm feeling, regret, ashamed, remorseful. I'm not mad at anyone but myself. I'm so angry that I let my life get to this point, but I don't blame anybody but myself. Before evil corrupted my life, I was a young girl with aspirations to succeed in a world with no limits. But then I quickly became a part of a world in which I was immensely limited. I refuse to allow this to define me though. And anyone who does know me knows that this was a mistake made well out of my character. As I was growing up, I was taught to take responsibility for my own actions. And it's about time I was given this respectful opportunity to say right now that I am here because I messed up. I can say all day that I hung around bad influences and I can even say I've witnessed some very poor decision-making, but what I can't say is that I didn't have a choice because I did. I have two legs that could have walked away, but for whatever pointless reason, they stayed put. And at some point I lost sight of who I truly am. I remember my sophomore year of high school when I was chosen by our district representative, Travis Cummings, to work in our state capitol. And at one point I was able to participate in a mock trial in a courtroom just like this, but bigger. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna pursue a career just like this one day. And I did not expect that the next time I stood in a courtroom, it would be dressed like this, bound by all of my failures. I can't even begin to process what's been going through the heads of my teachers, my family, or my coaches. Some of them sitting, listening as I speak, and yet still they can't grasp what they see. These shackles controlling the lengths of my steps, these handcuffs enabling me to reach around my mom and beg her to forgive me for this mess I put myself in. I remember being in high school like it was just a year ago, and that's probably because it was just a little over a year ago. I was one of the fastest swimmers on the team, one of the fastest runners on the track, and having so much potential to succeed at a higher level through athletics and academics. But instead, I went from a cap and gown to stripes and shackles. I went from an 18-year-old girl with her own apartment, car, an amazing job taking care of infants to absolutely nothing. I let myself get near rock bottom because I couldn't bear to be alone. I can't fathom being left by myself. So I didn't care if you were good for me or bad for me, whether you used me or took care of me, as long as you were there, I was content. I catered to others, not caring how it affected me and my well-being because I feared if I didn't do just as they say, that they would up and leave me by myself because I was of no use to them anymore, which is how I find myself here today. But thank God this happened to me. This is what I needed to end the lifestyle that was on the verge of ending me. Six months ago, the moment I was put into handcuffs for the first time in my life, that very moment, I learned my lesson. This is what it took to show me that my life is far more valuable than I ever treated it. My intelligence, my talent, and my life are far more important than this silly teenage spree of fun. But the truth is, as I look back, it wasn't fun. It was only that I had on a blindfold blocking the sunlight of reality. But now I can say I'm on the path to a new beginning. And I learned something while I've been here. I learned that I had to get locked up to be set free. And I feel as though that speaks for itself. 
Before I know it, I'll be starting my secondary education and pursuing my dreams, helping others. I have so much potential and I won't let a speck of it go to waste any longer. With all the sincerity in my heart, Taylor Arrington Harbor. Wow. <laughs> it's beautifully written and it's, it's very well done. And gosh, it, it encapsulates so much. And like I said, before you read it, like you would think that it would at least give you some, some opportunity to face some different sentencing than you did, but it didn't. So what exactly did the judge say after that? So in the end, it is only fair that we all served time in prison. And I remember the judge, he looked at me and he said, honestly, a young lady, you're very lucky right now. He said, because I'm going to sentence you the same as I sentenced the other little girl. And he called us little girls because we were just so young. And she, had, she was sentenced right before me. She was the, the second to last one to be sentenced. And I know it sounds crazy, but to this day, I, sh I feel like if I would have had the opportunity to go to court before my other female co-defendant and read that almost on both of our behalves, in a sense, that there may have been a different outcome for the both of us. Because when he said that he has to sentence me the same as the other little girl, mind you, me and her are the only ones who have never been in trouble before. My three males have all been in some kind of trouble with the justice system at some point in their life. So it kind of made sense. Right. And I remember right before, right before I found out that she was going to court before me, I'm not, I went to my attorney and I said, is there any way you can get my court date moved before hers? And he thought it was a key he knew what I was saying. He felt like there might be a different outcome if that was, if that happened, but unfortunately he was not able to make that happen. But you know what? Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think I needed, I needed to go to prison. Yeah. Yeah. I think prison jail can be the greatest source of rehab if you're ready to let it be and, and clearly as we'll discuss in a little bit there needs to be i think some changes in order to enhance that system right but when you go to prison or when you go to jail there is a choice that you have in the sense of how you deal with it you can go in there and say okay like my life's over this sucks you know my life is going to be forever horrible and blah 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 and it will because you'll continue to spiral down that path and you won't do anything right. and you're essentially your only person you're hurting is yourself or you can say you know what like i've really messed up this this sucks but i'm going to take this opportunity to really focus on myself and get better which it seemed like you did so i know you had some luck a little bit along the way after you get sentenced to prison you end up going into this boot camp program how did that happen and how did that boot camp program really change your life? So the boot camp program is the main reason why I say I needed to go to prison because that program right there, that boot camp program, I think is the reason why I am I am here today doing so well for myself. The boot camp program is very underlooked. A lot of people don't know about this program. And I didn't know about it. I sat in a county jail for seven months where you would think that I would hear about it. And I didn't hear about it until I was actually at the prison. And I realized that there is a four-month boot camp program within Lowell Correctional Institution. It's in Ocala, Florida. It's a women's prison. But mind you, before I go on any further, this program is so rare that they do not have it offered in every state for women. I'm almost 100% confident that they have a male boot camp program in every single state 
offered for, for males. But when it comes to female boot camp programs, for whatever reason, they are very limited, which is one of the reasons why I never heard about it. I get to the prison. I spend a couple of months in there in general population. And I hear about this boot camp program. And I see the boot campers. I can see them because sometimes they would march. You do everything like the military. They would march over to the main unit compound where I was at from the work camp where they were at. They are separated from general population, which is one of the reasons why the program succeeds so much because you are only with boot camp. You cannot talk to general population or you get in trouble. You literally can only talk to people within the program. And there were three of us. So very limited, which shows you how rare this program is. There are thousands of women trying to get into this boot camp program and three of us get accepted and go at one time. They take females in, in groups. They call them platoons like they do in the military. And you come in groups, so you get accepted. This is a program that you do have to be accepted by the judge that sentenced you to prison. That was the kicker right there. I was like, uh, how are we gonna make this work, right? Because I have no power in prison. And that's when my attorney comes back into play. My family was able to reach out to him and say, hey, do you think there is any chance that you can get her into this program? And mind you, a charge like mine is not supposed to be accepted into this program. They accept more minor charges like drug charges or like a burglary at that sense. When it comes to murder, armed robbery, anything of that sort, technically speaking, they are not supposed to accept you. But in the end, I did get accepted. So my attorney fights for me on the outside when his job was already done, didn't pay him again. He's just the, the kindness of his heart and, 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 and fighting for me, goes to the judge same judge that sentenced me to prison that day. And at first I was denied. The first time around, he denied me. He said, I don't know anything about this program. I've never, I've never accepted anybody into this program. Why would I start now? So he, he marked denied. My attorney comes back to me and I said, what do I need to do on my end to, to help with this? Because I'm telling you, I just have this feeling I'm supposed to do this program. Like I, I, I am going to do that. I don't care if I have to try again in six months, I'm going to do this program. The things that I had heard about it, it was awful. And they, they PT the crap out of you. And I'm like, screw that. I don't care. I don't care. I, if I get to go home early, I'll take that opportunity any day. So he goes back again. And this time I wrote a letter to the judge and, and I gave it to my attorney. I mailed him the, the letter and I think that it rang a bell for the judge. I think he remembered me from my plea and the way that I wrote and what I wrote in there, like basically pleading to him again, begging him, please give me this opportunity. I will not disappoint you. I promise. And he did. And he accepted me. And that right there, I was like, thank, thank God, right? Well, then it goes through a second step process and you have to then be accepted by classifications at the prison. This is based off of uh, your behavior in the prison. Have you gotten into any fights? Have you, have you gone to confinement? How have you been behaving? It also depends on that. I was a pretty good inmate as far as that goes. So that was never an issue. So I get accepted into this program. I'm now basically just awaiting to be taken. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then finally one day the officers come into the dorm and they say, hey, Harder, pack it up. You're going to boot camp." And I just, I started crying these tears of joy. I was like, holy crap, like this is it. Like I'm about to make this, I can, I can do it. I know I can. And so I go to boot camp. They transfer us to the work camp. It's a completely different compound. You're basically starting all over again. You can't take any of your personal items. You can't take your canteen. It's, it's just like the military. I mean, it is bare minimum. They strip you of everything. It's go time. And they take us and your first day is your shock-in day. So it's, it's a 
very strenuous day. I mean, I was throwing up and this, this kind of throw up was normal. Like I, I, I was 50 pounds heavier than I normally was. And it was about time they, they worked me good. So they're just trying to scare you on your first day. They're yelling in your face. They're making you do all this. And at first I'm like, okay, this is, this is pretty tough, but let's see where it goes. So time goes on and the main, the main person involved in this program is Sergeant Colbert. He was active in the military at the time, probably still is. He was National Guard. So he worked a nine to five shift. And for people who don't know, typically the COs inside of a prison work a 12 hour shift. They work 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., vice versa. This officer specifically who was in charge of the boot camp, we called him our drill sergeant. He was a nine to five, meaning that he wasn't there for the after hours of anything that would typically happen. So he did our training during the day. It wasn't just physical. I mean, there was a lot of mental health rehabilitation in this program, which is why I praise it so much. People don't understand what this program did for me the integrity, the responsibility, the maturity that it put on me. This program does stuff that allows you to rehabilitate, which is what we need more of. On Mondays, I'm going to food for kids. I'm leaving the compound with these other inmates dressed in my prison blues. I'm going to help pack up some bags of food for, for kids that are, in, that are in need. Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're leaving the compound and we're going to work with Habitat for Humanity. A lot of people may know about them. They help build houses for people in need. They have a restore where they sell stuff, kind of like a Goodwill. And we would go in, out into the open. And here I am on a job site with two other prisoners and two COs for the day. And all of these regular construction workers who work with this program with the inmates. I learned how to install insulation. I learned how to cut some wood. I learned how to put a nail in a wall. I mean, I, I learned basic life skills that I can use on the outside now. Rehabilitation is what we need to focus on. And then we would do other things off the compound too, but those were the main things that we would do. They really focused. They made us sit in, in classes called Thinking for a Change. It's where somebody comes in almost like a counselor, like a mental health counselor, and they sit there with you for a couple of hours during the day. And what's cool about it is since there's only three of us, we get that one-on-one -on -one time, you know, we're able to let our steam out versus being in a prison dorm in general population with 80 plus women. And you don't have those resources, you know? And so people may think, well, why, why would somebody not want to do this program? And the main, the main reason why a lot of people couldn't do it was the physical aspect. But for me, that was my drive. Boot camp made me realize that I was still, I was still me. I was still Taylor. I'm still the girl that I was in high school. Right. And it let me get that. My drive just came back out again. Like I started to become alive again. I woke up every day and I'm running two miles and I'm, I'm doing pushups and sit-ups and, and, and I had an end goal. I had something to work towards almost like working under pressure, which is what I'm really good at. Because if you didn't complete these physical, these physical steps, then you wouldn't phase up to the next step to go on. You know, they made you work for it as they should, though. This program allows you to get out of prison early, which I don't think people understand. I served almost a year less than I should have served home at home. I, I, I went home after boot camp and served the remainder of my actual prison sentence on house arrest. So there was a stipulation added in there. Yeah, I had an ankle monitor on my leg, but I was home. And so this program is so important for people to know about because 
I feel as though if I would have spent the rest of my time in prison, my entire prison sentence in general population, without these resources from the boot camp program, I might not be where I am today mentally, which is the most important thing to focus on here. Right. Absolutely. And I think it was like the perfect blend, right? Physical activity, which we know improves your self-confidence, improves your self-esteem, makes you feel more secure, and helps you connect, reconnect to your body, reconnect to your identity, and then structure, personal accountability, being of service, community. Like I'm sure like you you formed a tight bond with the other girls that were involved in the boot camp with you. And also it just gave you hope, like knowing that if you completed X, Y, and Z, you know, every single day, you knew that you would get out at a certain time. And then I think that helps people, right? Cause a lot of yeah. people that just sit there and they really don't know like when they're getting out cause right. you know, they might have to go back to court or they really don't have a plan as far as like, are they going to be able to get a job or it's going to help, you know, reduce their right. sentence. And, and, and plus they're still in that same frame of mind if they're not exercising and they're not like reinventing themselves and moving towards the future version of themselves. And they're still caught in the past version. I can get pretty lonely and, and isolated in there. So like during that time, before we talk about like how you've trans- transitioned into what you're doing now, like what were some of the things that that program did for you that, that like changed like your mindset and helped you deal with the things that you weren't able to deal with when you were younger? All right. So the drill sergeant in there, he is the only CO that I speak highly on when it comes to my prison experience because of the way that he treated us like we were just regular people. Like we were just little girls who made it. And I say little girls because in order to be accepted into this program, you do have to be between the ages of 18 and 25. So that is a stipulation as well as this has to be your first offense, your first time going to prison. So with that being said, in this program, aside from leaving the compound and feeling a sense of normalcy, the programming that they had within is they held, we learned a lot of the military roles inside of inside of this program that he was able to teach us like the integrity. What are you doing when nobody's looking, right? So are you gonna act one way to my face and then whenever I'm not here, you're gonna act another way? And I feel like our drill sergeant helped us with that in a sense of since he was a nine to five, when he left, how are we gonna act? Are we Are we just putting up a show for him so we can just go home? Or is this stuff really being embedded in us you know, and, and it taught me structure in my life, organization, because again, a lot of it was military based. Literally, it felt like we were in the military the way that we were being treated in this program. But they held us to a higher standard at the prison as well. So when you saw the boot camp, it was like, oh, there's the boot camp. Like we're, we're marching, we're, 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 you know, and humiliation was a big a part of it. And I think that that's something I needed because I talked about earlier the judgment of other people having on me or being embarrassed. And I was kind of able to let some of that go. Like, you know what? I am who I am. I have done what I have done. And there's nothing that I can do to change that. And by humiliation, I mean that we would go through certain things in this program in front of general population, in front of other people. And it was humiliating, but that was the point. The point of this program and and what what they told us is to break you down, to build you back up again. So we're going to break down all of that negativity and, and, and weak mental health and, and trauma that you have from this experience. And we're going to build you back up again from the ground up. And that was the most important thing was letting go of those demons and then being able to come out fresh again into society, as well as they had certain programming, like teaching us how we can find a job, job interviewing, how to fill out a resume, just little basic steps like that helped me in this program. 
So while we're, while we're on this subject of, of how this program really helped you and then also blending it with, you know, getting into prison reform a little bit, like, I know you said, like one of the, the reasons that people outside of it, not being their first offense or outside of a certain age, you said there, there's a lot of people that could do the program just based on the physical requirements that this program takes. Like, right. what are some of the things that you think from this program, you know, could be integrated into every prison system, every county jail to really help people use that time in jail to actually rehabilitate. Right. So something I want to mention really quick that is very interesting and the reason why I, I, I strongly want to work on the reform for the boot camp program as far as getting more out there. In Ocala, Florida, where Lowell is located, it's, it's a county called Marion County. So I was doing my research, I was looking up some articles and I read, and it makes so much sense that the reason why the boot camp needs to be praised more is because 9% of inmates who graduate from the boot camp program reoffend. Whereas 33% of general population reoffend, meaning they didn't go through the boot camp program. So they are a reoffender and they're coming back to prison because they didn't go through this program. Of course, not everybody's perfect. There are some people who have done the boot camp program and reoffended and gone back to prison. But the differences in those numbers just comes to show what this program can do for somebody. And the fact that I was in there with two other girls when there were thousands of other girls who were begging to, when I was in general population, these girls were like, oh, if you get accepted, you're so lucky. I, I, I tried to get in two years ago. I tried to get in three years ago. I wasn't able to get in, you know? And I really want to touch on the boot camp program had some positive effects, but there are also some negative effects that, you know, from the program. I don't know if you want to get into that, but well, I, I, think definitely... we, I think we all, we, I think people appreciate, I mean, I see that your audience loves prison stories. So this right. could be a good opportunity to share as comfortable as you are and as, as, as able, I guess, as you're able to share the story you were, I guess, telling me right. you know, when we connected about like what are the negatives about this this boot camp. Right. And so I don't want it to scare people off because things things were handled in a way that I do believe they were handled correctly in a sense. Now you, you can't look this story up on Google whereas I I feel as though if it would have if, if it would have gotten out to the public I feel like the program would have been shut down or something with the prison would have happened. But I, I, I sit there on Google sometimes and I'll type in different keywords to see if it'll pull up and there's not a chance in hell it's getting pulled up. So within the prison, within the boot camp program, because of what these officers are able to do to us, and I, I say that because before this incident happened, any officer on that compound was allowed to look at boot camp and say, hey, drop and give me 20. Or, hey, you do this or you did physical work, right? And anywhere, I'm talking, you can be in the chow hall line and they can tell you just because you're boot camp and you're, they're allowed to do it, hey, drop and give me 20, just because. Not that you did anything wrong. Well, it started to get out of hand. And it's specifically with the platoon that I was there with, unfortunately, something that we experienced, but eventually got it handled. So within the program, like I said, the drill sergeant, who was a great officer, works the nine to five, whereas we had a night shift that worked 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And with this night shift, they did not have our best interest in mind. If anything, they they loved the fact that they could take advantage of us physically. And I do not mean sexual assault before we go on. I specifically mean actual physical drainage from our bodies. I mean, but they, they got a real good kick out of it. So 
my drill sergeant leaves and boot camp is technically supposed to be in bed by eight o'clock every night. And this is because you physically train for 16 hours every single day, waking up at 4.30 in the morning. So by eight o'clock at night, you're so exhausted, you need to get some rest. Well, these officers had other plans in mind. And for about two and a half months, it went on. And it started with physical PTing outside at different hours of the night. I'm talking one o'clock in the morning to 3 a.m. We are outside physically training in front of these officers for their entertainment. At this point, it was not to better ourselves. There was nothing, we, we did that during the day. We didn't need any more physical exhaustion. These officers were making us do things like lunge up a hill and then roll back down and then do it again. These officers would make us make up different chants while we were doing it in a sense of just just a humiliation on our end, but not in the good way. So we'd have to sing a song together in unison as we lunge up this hill and then we roll back down. And then the days go on, the days go on, the nights go on. And then they started coming up with different ideas and they would make us, we have to wear canteens around our waist in the boot camp program. Since you're always physically training, you need water on hand at all times. So what these officers would make us do is they would make us fill these canteens full of water to the very rim, run inside, we're timed, get, get in the sink, fill it up, run back outside. And then they would start a timer for about 60 seconds. And they'd say, okay, now chug this water. And then you're going to lunge up that hill and you're going to roll back down until you throw up. And at first we legitimately thought that they were out of their mind, that they cannot be serious. But we seriously had to stand there in front of them, chug our water within 60 seconds, turn back around and together all in unison, lunge up this hill, and then roll back down. And if we didn't throw up, we do it again. And then if we didn't throw up, then we're going to go fill our canteens back up with water, even though we just chugged something about five minutes ago, fill those canteens up again to the very rim, and then chug them again, and then do it again and again. So this goes on for days, weeks, and then they started to get more creative with it. The thing that initially got them caught and in trouble is because within the last couple of years recently, they integrated cameras and videos into prisons, which I could not imagine prison life before cameras were there because God, I, I, I cannot imagine the things that these officers were getting away with. The PTing aspect was happening outside. There are no cameras outside. The only thing that was written in that report when we ended up being subpoenaed to testify to court, so we had access to the court documents, was that they saw inmate Harbor, inmate Killian, inmate Curry sporadically running in and out of the dorm at all hours of the night. And that's when we were going in and out, filling our canteens up. So they could see that. And our stories accounted to that. They all matched up in that sense. So then they were able to prove what they were doing to us on the outside. The main thing that happened that got them caught was a game of charades that they wanted us to play. And people may think, how the heck is a game of charades going to get three officers fired, right? This was not something that we wanted to do. This is something we did because they kind of bribed us. They said, hey, you know, we won't make you physically PT tonight. And you guys can go to bed by eight o'clock, but we're going to play a game of charades and you guys all have to participate. So we were like, okay, sure. Heck yeah. I, I would love to go to sleep. We thought we were about to be living hell again with you guys. Like, heck yeah, let's go. So what these officers did, it was three male officers and they were, they were sitting in this, in this room and there was a whiteboard behind them. So they wrote our names up there and they were going to rate us one through 10. So at first it started off with, act like a walrus, right? They would tell us how they wanted us to act. And basically the way that it worked is we would all go and whoever did the best, whoever they thought did the best can sit out the next round and then the other girls have to keep going. So this encouraged us 
to really play the game, you know, like, let, let me do really good, better than you so that I don't have to do it the next round because I don't want to, that's embarrassing. So that's what they did. They rated us one through 10, like, oh, Taylor gets an eight. So-and-so gets a nine, you get a 10. Okay. You sit out, you two go act like a horse getting struck by lightning. And I'm not kidding you. when I say we sat there and galloped around this room, neighed around this room, and then acted like we got struck by lightning. Like, can you imagine grown men men and us being grown women like this is a thing and it wasn't an agreement on our end we were like okay maybe we shouldn't agree to this like let, let's go pts outside and then the biggest one i think that really got him is the last round was acting like a dog but they wanted us to get really creative they said if you guys get really creative with this one you guys can be done so they had us go to the room inside of this boot camp dorm that had all of our uniforms in it. In the bootcamp program, you wear different uniforms than general population. So you have belts and boots and shorts and pants and so on. So they had us go get a belt from the room and they had one of us tie it around one of the other girl's necks. And then the other girl was walking her like a dog around the room on all fours. And she comes up to me and she, she goes as far as like rubbing up on my leg, acting like a dog panting with her tongue out shaking her butt as if she's wagging her tail mind you we're in dress down clothes we're in like gym shorts and like a white tee and these three officers are sitting there in stairs hysterically getting a laugh out of this so the game ends we go to sleep and the next morning we were like i i think that i think that we have them finally i think we can finally get them in trouble mind you it's been now two and a half months this has been going on but that charades game was like the final straw we were like i'm not living through another night like that because god only knows what else they're going to come up with so our drill sergeant comes in and we told him we said you know sergeant colbert i i i think that we finally have something on this shift and we've never told you about it but this is the extent of it and i think that you guys should rewatch the cameras so he calls the white shirts in, the lieutenants and the people who are above him. They go into this little office where the cameras are, the tape is being recorded. They rewind to last night. And he comes out and he says, you guys pack up all of your stuff. You guys are going to confinement. And he said, you're not in trouble, but we are about to conduct an investigation. And for your safety, you need to go to confinement. All three of the officers were transferred to other prisons during the course of this investigation, which lasted about two weeks. We were in confinement, not knowing when we were going to get out. We were just thrown into confinement with every other person in confinement, regular confinement. There was no special confinement for us. We were just in there with everyone else. 24 hours a day, you come out three times a week to shower for about, I think you get like 10 minutes to shower. So treated like confinement, but not in trouble, right? So anyways, we get out. None of the guards are there. We kind of still don't know what's going on. Well, then we end up getting subpoenaed to testify in court. So the reason what I mean, it's not out in the public. They handled everything within the prison. Very smart on their end. They subpoenaed us to testify in court in which we had court at the prison. They had a whole entire court session at the prison. The officers were cross-examined. And in the end, all three officers were fired from Lowell Correctional Institution after that investigation. And for that, I praise Lowell, but it should have never gotten to that point. Those officers had been working there for 30 plus years. And when I tell you, when we got out of confinement and walked back onto this compound, the other women were just standing on the compound and they just stopped and they finally saw us again because they had no idea where boot camp went. It was very abnormal. And then they had found out that the officers did in fact get fired and they just all stopped and they just started clapping for us. Almost like a, like a, like a round, like a standing ovation, like a round of applause as we marched back to our dorm. And like, we felt it within us. We were like, whoa, like we did something there. Like we finally, we spoke up and look where it led us and they actually got fired. So 
that was pretty cool that they they actually got fired like heck yeah for that wow holy crap that's that's freaking awful was that the was that like the first time that they had heard these officers doing anything like that or had they did they have a record like a track record of this stuff or, or no absolutely i remember at one point one of the officers super weird guy uh, it was like 4 30 in the morning so boot camp was the only or the only people that get up this early and mind you it's the work camp it's a very small compound it's the smallest one of all of them right and I think I had some attitude this morning or I don't know what it was but I was just like I was done I was like you guys are even PTing us at 4 30 in the morning after we just eat chow like can you guys take a like take a fucking break like what is right. wrong with you people like this has gotten out of hand and I mouthed off to him and he was like come with me so he pulls me to the edge of the compound and by the edge, I just mean like away from the other boot campers. And he looks at me and he was like, you don't give me that kind of attitude. He was like, you know how many investigations I've beaten here? He's like, do you know how well known my name is here? He was like, I've been working here for 30 plus years and I've beaten every investigation I've gotten under. He was like, who do you think they're going to believe me or you? I was like, you're right. Probably not me. But little did he know within the next couple of weeks that he would end up getting fired. And what's really crazy is he specifically was the one that did most of it. And he is specifically the one that cross-examined me and the other two girls during this court session. He, they let him sit there and ask us questions, basically trying to clear his name. They were simple, like yes or no questions with very minor explanation, but he was trying to clear his name and the way he was asking these questions was just sick, the way he was trying to get out of it. Like he wanted, he was going to possibly continue working at that prison. And I just, I couldn't imagine that for anyone for the future of this program. And God only knows what else he's done. And I think that has a lot to do with why the other women on this compound literally stopped and clapped for us as we walked back on. So they were like, it was a thank you. It was like, thank you for getting these guards out of here. Where they were just fired. There was no like criminal charges or anything. Nope. They were just fired. They were like, oh, never allowed to work for the department of corrections ever again, but that's it. Wow. Yeah. Well, good for you for, for, for speaking up and, and standing up for yourself in, in a position where you are the person who probably typically wouldn't get believed because you're, you right. know, a, you just, you, you're in there for an armed robbery charge. Right. And you got somebody who's worked there for 30 plus years. Like, who are they going to believe? And, and honestly, right. like, as much as obviously, I think there probably should have been some criminal charges there. Absolutely. Kudos, kudos to the system for doing the right thing and, and firing them. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, I guess that's the, I mean, I don't want to say that was the right thing, but at least doing a taking a step in the right direction and at least firing them and not letting that go on any longer. I mean, obviously I think there should have been a lot more done given what they put you, put you all through. I mean, that's awful, but I think in the context of whether they chose to believe you and your, the other people involved in the case versus these officers, like thankfully and good for them for, for believing, for believing you all. So, so you get out, you're on house arrest after, you know, experiencing a great transformation in your life. Although you had this little blip where it was, right. there was some like a negative experience there, but mostly positive from what I understand. Right. Like, where was your confidence? Like, did you actually believe that you were going to make it? Did you are like, you know, I have this newfound inner peace within myself. I, my self-esteem's back up again, or were you still feeling like insecure in fear? Like, oh my gosh, like I'm probably going to end up going back. Right. So I never had the fear that I was going to end back up in prison for anything. My biggest fear at first, not really knowing how probation works and house arrests and the stipulation. Like I was scared that the the smallest little thing was going to get me in trouble. Like 
if I'm not in my driveway by like 9.59, like, am I going to go back to prison? You know, the little things. I didn't, I didn't, I had the confidence in myself that I was not going to commit another crime. Okay. Like I, I knew that I was past that and the things that I have learned and gone through. And I don't want to do that again because I wouldn't wish prison on my worst enemy at this point, because I may have had a decent experience with this boot camp program, but I was still in prison and it was a living hell every single day. And it was hard every single day, especially at my age, you know, being so young. But I think on the outside, I, I dealt with a lot of social anxiety, which is not like me at all. I dealt with a lot of anxiety. I remember going to the mall with my mom the day after I got out. I had permission from my probation officer to go get some new clothes because I literally didn't fit in any of my clothes when I was 100 pounds before I went. And I remember walking in and I walked in through the court, the, the food court. And I was like, and I had an immediate panic attack. And I ran out of there. And my mom's chasing me through the parking lot. And I jump in the car and I had a full-blown panic attack. We sat there for a second. She was like, we only have four hours blocked out on your time. Really need to get you some clothes. So we go around to the other entrance. That's not so busy. I'm in there for not even maybe an hour, barely got anything. And I left. So in that aspect, I dealt with a lot of anxiety being back out in public because for some reason, I felt like prison felon was written all over me that people who don't even know me, strangers walking down the street that they just knew that I had just gone out of prison that I, I was a convicted felon, like, oh God, she's bad, but they didn't. That wasn't the reality of it. And it took me a little while to get used to that. And honestly, it was TikTok that let me be more confident in who I am and what I'm doing in the course, over the course of the last six months. So that leaves a couple of years of me not feeling confident, feeling as though, how am I going to find a good career for me and my son to make enough money how am I going to find good housing? That was a big struggle. Housing and employment are the biggest struggles for convicted felons on the outside, which also needs more, more reform on and, and rehabilitation on the outside for that in the justice system. Well, especially but, uh, for an armed robbery charge, right? It's probably hard where, right. you know, it, it might be a little bit different if, I mean, I look back and like, you know, although I was a convicted felon, like putting that I, that I sold drugs and specifically pot, Right. It's way different than I, than I said I was convicted of an armed robbery. Like that's, that's right. Way so especially when you're felon. Yeah. I am a violent felon is how they look at me. They look at my charge as a violent crime. Right. So, yeah. And, and it can be very hard, I think, for a employer or somebody who owns a business to, to, to trust. And I, and I think I want to say, like, while I do believe that there needs to be some reform and it needs to be just destigmatized because we all make these mistakes. I definitely also can understand yeah. that if I'm an employer and I see somebody applying for a job and like, just say, I'm just using this as an example, like two years ago, they're in prison for an armed robbery and you have somebody else, exact same credentials who wasn't, you know, I'm not going to say that I would pick up one over the other, but you would, I would, though. <laughs> I would definitely be, I would definitely be questioning the person more so about who got convicted of the armed robbery, wanting to learn a lot more about them and their story than the other person, because there's already this level of distrust, like, like, shoot, like I have a business. This person wasn't went to jail for armed robbery. They're going to do that to me. So I can understand that, but I do agree that yes, we need to create a bridge to help felons, to help people who, who are coming out of prison and jail, make, make a smoother life transition so that they're not just faced to, to navigate it on their own. So how did you start to develop the self-confidence within yourself and and learn to be okay with who you are to put yourself out on a platform or really your first TikTok 
was you sharing your story. It's not like you've been <laughs> using TikTok for a couple of years, just doing different stuff on there. Your first TikTok was you admitting that you went to prison. So how did you develop the confidence to do that? I just did. I don't know where I'm telling you that's where it started. I, I, I didn't really continue to write whenever I was out. So, and, and I did, I did, I did see a therapist and she actually used to work inside of prison. So the insight that this woman was able to give me was phenomenal. And I learned so much from her and she helped me tremendously. But you know what? I, I don't know where it came from. I just, I just did it. <laughs> I, I, and once I posted that first video, at first I didn't, I didn't think people would take me seriously because people sometimes will still question me. I'll be like, yeah, I went to prison. No, you didn't. Like, you're right. No, I didn't. Like, I'm just, that's not something I want to put on my resume or speak out there, but yes, I did. And I think a lot of it had to also do with the job that I was given, which is working at the veterinary hospital that I do work at, which you would not typically see a convicted felon working. Luckily, the people who own this veterinary hospital, they took a chance on me. They heard my story. They gave me that time and chance to speak to them and tell them the details of my crime, you know, where I am at with life today. And then working there for a couple of months, about six months, actually, I was able to develop more confidence as far as my coworkers at first did not know about my charge. It was kind of under the table. It was like, hey, we're going to hire you, but let's not talk about it. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. problem, understandable. For sure. You know, and, and, and I, so I did that. And then I slowly started to get more comfortable. People started to know who I worked with and they didn't treat me any differently. And I work and live in a very conservative area. You know, and I've thought for sure, especially because I work with doctors, you know, I was thinking there's no way they're not going to judge me. But when people started to find out there, they didn't they didn't judge me like I thought they would. So that kind of gave me a little more confidence being able to work there, do my job just as well as others for someone to see, hey, she's a convicted felon. But look, we gave her a chance. And now, look, she's doing her job just as well as the next person who's not a convicted felon. And then, like I said, I was on my lunch break one day and I go on TikTok. I'm eating my firehouse sandwich, just goofing off. And I, I press go and I'm like, hey, guys, just let me know if you want to hear my story. I went to prison. OK, see you later. And that was it. And then I woke up the next morning and the video blew up and I was like, no freaking way. And then I started my storyline, just part one, part two, part three. This is what I did. Da, 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 and it just went from there. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for that because I feel like it's led me to opportunities like this, being able to talk to you, you know, having interviews with the local newspaper for them to write an article about me, you know, brand deals and sponsorships and helping me make money to support my son as a single mom, which is ultimately my end goal to make the best life for him. And I feel like I'm finally on the path to do that because I felt like this was always in me, public speaking, helping others, reaching out. And I mentioned it in my plea in 2017 when I wrote this, that when I get out, I'm going to start my education and I'm going to pursue my dreams helping others. And I feel like I'm kind of on that path. And for that, I'm super thankful. You definitely are on that path. I mean, gosh, you've got over a million followers on TikTok and your following was built just from you simply sharing your story. It's like, so what has sharing your story done for you as far as your own healing journey? I mean, we're, we, we talked about like mental health, we talked about shame. And I know those have been, those are things that a lot of people struggle with specifically when they're convicted felons. And, and also, you know, when they're in the public eye of sharing that it can be very, very challenging. So how has TikTok really helped you with your healing process? So confidence is number one. 
acceptance is number two, acceptance within myself and from other people. Because for the longest, I allowed other people's opinions of me to drive me on how I would live my life by pleasing them and not myself. So I feel like TikTok allowed me to get the confidence to talk about it. Now I can talk. I, I, it got to the point at the beginning of TikTok, I will say, I could speak into the, to, to the camera about my issues and about prison just fine. But then I found myself when I'm out in public and someone says, oh, well, why'd you go to prison? And I'm like, I, I, I curl up into a little box and I'm like, oh, like, do we really have to talk about it? I'll be like, just go watch my videos. Seriously. <laughs> at first, I was like, just go watch my videos because I was still a little, you know, embarrassed of, of what I had done. I mean, and it... I feel like I might always have that little sense of embarrassment. I mean, come on, I freaking robbed a drug dealer and I was 19 years old. I mean, it's embarrassing, but I, I, I'm able to be more accepted into this world. I feel like, especially with 1.2 million people enjoyed my story enough or were encouraged or inspired by my story enough to follow me. And now they're just going to watch my journey. And here I am taking those steps. And I, I hope, and I pray that I will be able to get into high schools to talk to these kids, get get into prisons and jails and talk to people and and just carry on. I'm, I'm using this negative as a positive. Literally in every aspect of my life, my prison story is now being used as a positive. And that, that's the biggest thing for me. Yeah, they say your past can either become your purpose or can become your prison, right? And I think right. so many people, their past becomes their prison where they just pay attention to it so much. All the mistakes they made, all the people they hurt, all the people that hurt them, all the things that didn't go their way and they get stuck in that same mindset and it keeps them like literally trapped in this mental prison, right? And I feel like sometimes these mental prisons, these emotional prisons we get in are far worse than physical prison, right? Yeah. Because they can like haunt us the rest of our lives and they can actually lead to other problems. So I know one of the mental prisons that you've that you've had to deal with throughout your life is is being alone. And so I know that you felt alone and isolated as a teenager and that led you to hanging out with the wrong crowd just to be around people and getting involved with, right. with drugs and that lifestyle. So now you're a single mom. You're you're by yourself raising your son and you, you live alone. Like how are you dealing with this the, the isolation now it is still a daily battle i will not sit here and say that i am 100 fixed and that i have accepted being alone because i absolutely have not again i will say that i am motivated and driven when i have something to work towards and every single day for me that is my son i will not allow my life and my mistakes to reflect on him and how he will be raised and the opportunities that he will get. And I'm glad that I have the education behind me with the prison system and the justice system and tr just trouble, just trouble and hardships to where I can now portray that to my son to hope and pray that he can avoid that too, because I didn't have that. I don't feel as though I had that kind of guidance. And I feel like it's super important, especially at a young age for children to know this can happen, but this is how you can avoid it. What can I do to help you? I want to be there for my son mentally more than anything, because to me, mental health controls every aspect of your life. If we come to a root, mental health is the root. And then the rest of your life feeds off of that. Everything happens for a reason is my life motto and good or bad. It's going to work out the way that it needs to work out for you. You're going to go through hardships, but 
this is the other thing that I really want to portray is that you can't change anything about your past. I can't change what I just said. You know what I mean? Like I just said that I, you can't change anything about your past. So just move forward. Just figure out how to move forward. Don't dwell on the past like I did for so long. Amen to that. And I think like with that said, like, so what are some things that you do today on a daily basis? Like a few quick tips to like optimize your mental health. Like during these times where you're saying like you're struggling sometimes with single mom life. I've heard you talk about that. I, where you're struggling with being alone with your, when you're struggling, like with what the future holds, like what are some things that you do to keep yourself grounded besides your son? Right. So I keep myself busy a lot. I'm a very busy person because I feel as though kind of sitting still, I do start to slip back and think a lot, but I've, I've taken more time for myself. I have recently started to learn a lot more about self-love and self-care because I would just push that to the side. And I do small things like things that benefit me. I will, I can go sit by a body of water for, for however long and just clear my mind. And I feel at peace. You have to find your niche, you know, you got to find for you that might not work for the next person, but it works for me taking that time to kind of reflect and breathe. And there's times where my mom, she'll take my son for me just so I can go spend a couple of hours on my own and just reflect. And I kind of do that weekly. I do like a big reflection every week. And it's kind of happens on like Sundays, obviously kind of like the start of my week. And I will take a couple of hours to myself. I'll plan out my week. I'll organize myself. I'll organize my house because organization to me keeps me in line. So again, you find your niche and you kind of go from there, but self-care is number one. And I recently developed that it's, it's been a long time coming, but I have recently been able to give myself the time that I need for my mental health. Absolutely. And it's self-care, self-love is so important. And I think just finding the things that work for you on a daily basis that give you that is crucial. I think so many times what happens is we try to chase after what works for somebody else without really focusing on what what works for us. And once we're able to to really do some inner work and, and go within and like, see like, okay, like these are things that work for me. I know I need to, like you said, be a, I can, you can be by a body of water writing, working out, being around positive people, creating TikToks. Like that's like your recipe for daily success. So I love that you said that. So I guess the last question I have is the one that probably you get asked the most, like what's up with your co-defendants? Where are they at now? Are they still in in trouble? Like, do you talk to them still? Are you like, so really quick, I don't talk to any of them at all. I have not talked to any of them since, since before prison, except for the female. I did talk to her a slight bit after prison. Big mistake, not happening again. One of my co-defendants is serving a five-year sentence back in prison already. One of my other co-defendants, I have absolutely no idea because I really didn't know him beforehand. And then my other co-defendant actually has a baby now. As far as I know, he's doing halfway decent. But again, I don't keep up with their lives. And then the female, I don't know what she's doing. I, I don't know. And I'm, I'm glad that I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. The only one that I really know about is the one that is back in prison, literally for a five-year sentence. And that's because it was talked about, you know, around, around the town, you know, oh, he's back in prison already. So far, he is the only one who has gone back to prison, one of them. Well, Taylor, this has been awesome. And I I really enjoy your vulnerability and have have appreciated like how much you're willing to share with your story. And I think so many people are going to get a lot out of it just from either an entertainment perspective, because it is, you, you know, it is an entertaining story in the sense that, you know, it's a feel good story where you, you, you started out as this young girl who 
had a promising life in front of you. You were a great athlete, great student, great person. And then you get caught up with the wrong crowd and a few unfortunate events that happened in your life. And then some unfortunate decisions on your end follow that. And then people were like, how does somebody in that situation become incarcerated for armed robbery? And, and it's inspirational to, to hear you share exactly like how you were able to transform your life, how you were able to stand up for yourself and rediscover who you truly were at your core and then right. now use your story to help other people. So if people want to connect with you, I know you're, you're very active on TikTok. You're, you've created an Instagram account now, which I think you're not as active on Instagram. I think TikTok's the main place to find you, but where can people, if they want to check you out, where, what's your Instagram and TikTok handles? Yeah. So TikTok is definitely number one. They are the same both on TikTok and Instagram. So it's super easy. It's Taylor Arrington. I do spell my name a little bit different. So it is T-A-Y-L-E-R with an E. And then Arrington is A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. So I, I would definitely love if, if people got something from this story, not just an entertainment perspective, but, you know, educational as well. And I'm hoping to people for people to reach out from this, you know, if they have any ideas for prison reform, I am all about it. Reach out to me. I have a business email. It's in my bio on Instagram. I am more than willing to work with anyone who is willing to work towards a better justice system for us. It's a huge passion of mine. And I thank you tremendously for this opportunity to get the word out there. Amazing. Yeah. And people are definitely going to want to connect with you. So I will make sure to include um, the links to your Instagram and TikTok in the show notes. And just once again, wanted to thank you for coming on and for your transparency and authenticity and, and really just spilling your heart out on the show. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to, to share a takeaway with this episode. Maybe it's something that Taylor said as far as like, maybe like the, the why she started to go down this, this dark path, or maybe it was something she said about her experience in prison or something she said about healing or how she's dealing with building confidence through TikTok and helping others, whatever it was, tag Taylor, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.